The night is mine, my own time, to do with as I will, as long as I am quiet, as long as I don't move, as long as I lie still. Welcome to the Ofcast. I'm your host, Elsie Eigerman. And I'm your host, Max Mariner. This week we're discussing Chapter 7. Chapter 7, Part 3. Yes. Now, if you don't mind, Elsie, I'd like to change things up this week. Oh. I would like to give an honest summary of what happens in this chapter. Like, just not like a funny, like, this happens. You know what I'm saying? Okay, yeah, I think this this chapter definitely warrants that. Yeah. So in this chapter, um, Alfred's having just laying awake at night, thinking about all the ways that she is free tonight, in that she is not. And she has three different memories of a time before, uh, at least two of them a time before Gilead. The first, she is uh, with her friend in what I assume to be high school, um, just in her room. I explicitly says college. College, oh. (laughs) Um, um, Also, Moira says, let's go for a beer and is smoking. Um, Okay, yeah. (laughs) Because we know high school students don't do that. (laughs) You know. Yeah. Um, The second memory, she is with her mom at at just just feeding ducks and uh, not, not doing anything else. Just, just feeding ducks, right, Elsie? Just yes, definitely. Ducks. That's what her mother said that they were going to do. And because she has such a strong relationship with her mother, they just go and mm-hmm. feed ducks. Yes. She doesn't find anything weird. Anything uh, weird about any flames or yeah, weird not, magazines. Not like just a, a book ducks. burning or anything that her mother yeah. participates in and is, like, clearly very excited about and talks about Alfred like she isn't there. Yep. <laughs> totally that. And then the third, sh- the third flashback is probably the uh, the most overtly horrifying. Is that s- it seems to imply that something that Alfred has created has been taken away from her, and it is implied to be a daughter or some kind of offspring. I mean, it's almost explicit. Like they say to to Alfred, she's in good hands. They said with people yeah. who are fit, you are unfit, but you want what's best for her, don't you? Which implies, like, they took her daughter. Yeah. Um, and then, finally, in my personal favorite uh, part of the chapter, she just discusses stories. How they work, how they fit, and why they're important, and the real sadness behind them. Because a story ends, and it's from somebody's perspective. And in this case, it, it really doesn't. Yeah, There's no immediate and she danger. sort of turns and looks at the audience and is like, hey. Truly, she was the Frank Underwood of her time. Just... <laughs> The side to the audience, like, is that, is that weird? Is that weird to reference in 2019? Is that, is that a weird reference to I, make I, now? I, I cringed a little bit. I'm not going to okay, lie. Okay, okay. You know what? <laughs> I'll take, I'll hold that out. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> it, it. The first thing that stuck out to me, and this is kind of, I'm going to go backwards for a second, is that the fact that this chapter is part of part three, which is only one chapter long. Yeah. And in the, the part titles, at least so far, have been just day and night. Um, and they don't seem to have that much significance other than, like, whether or not it's a daytime scene or a nighttime scene. Yeah, I have to wonder, is this supposed to be, like, a surprising thing for At- that Ed would put in to, like, catch us off guard? Like, oh, this part's over! Oh, you thought you were going to get settled into the next part? Oh, nope, waiting room, part four, let's go. I think it sort of, it breaks up the, like time because the the previous chapters we read were definitely sequential like it, it it talks about how she goes down the stairs and out 
past the, the, the garden, meets up with Avglan, they go into the city, and then they go and walk by the river. And, like, that's a continuous scene. And, yes, of course, we get all these flashbacks and sort of jumps around, but that's a, a continuous, like, linear movement. And then this is a continuous linear movement of, like, it's just her lying in bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I will say I finally, and in the same, like, on the note, on that note of, like, structure, I finally picked up on how these flashbacks work. Like, I finally oh. get it. Where should I go in the break? Somewhere good. If you guys don't remember from a few chapters ago, it was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around the idea of, like, flat, like the concept of jumping in flashbacks without, like, any sort of punctual or punctuation that indicates it outside of a break in the text. But this yeah. time, now I get it. Where should I go? Somewhere good. Moira sitting on the edge of the bed. Like, that, I get it. Like, I, yeah, I understand and it, that. It very much makes her feel like a time traveler, where she's like, well, where will I go? And she sort of mm-hmm. flies off into her memories. Time traveler's handmaid, yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about the way we jump between these three memories? I, it feels very natural to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like it. Um, yeah. Now, I don't, you know, I don't mean to always bring up, like, authorial intent to everything, but <laughs> do you have any, like theories or guesses as to why Atwood structured these three memories in this specific order? I, I, I can understand, like, the third memory being, like, the most vague and probably the most alluding to what's, like, what we'll learn later on in the book. But the fact that we go from she's a college student to she's a girl with her mother, like, yeah. that, like, you'd think it would be sequential. You'd think it'd be chronological, but it's not. I, it sort of feels somewhat, like, thematic to me. Um, and... Mm-hmm. I, when we when we think back to our memories, we don't always move sequentially. We usually move more thematically. This um, is true. And so I think the fact that Moira is casually talking about this term paper she wrote about date rape and being like, hey, come hang out with me. And then she thinks of this time that she was supposed to go hang out with her mother, but actually it was a porn burning. Yeah. Um, I Which think those I have feel to wear, maybe... related to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have to wonder if that was intent, uh, if that was intended to like show from like kind of regular just conversing with a friend to like a more moment of destruction of like burning the porn was is like something not in like it's I would help me out here, Elsie. Is it would you consider that a Galadian act? Something that, yes, that, yeah. I, I think this is this is another call out of second wave feminism being like, hey, you're playing directly into their hands, you idiots. Yeah. Um, and I mean, they're also both these scenes of like messy freedom. So like the the scene with Moira, we get this discussion of how like messy her dorm room is. Like it's explicitly stated that her bed's a mess and she's complaining that Moira is getting ash on her bed. And mm-hmm. then there's also with this scene on the river with the fire, it's like it's sort of like this sort of witch's coven thing where like the what is the specific thing that's described? Oh, their faces were happy, ecstatic almost. Fire can do that. Um, yes, this reminds... Okay, may I, make a, may I do a movie reference real quick? Okay. This reminds me of the ending of Black Klansman. If you guys have seen that movie, you know how it ends I, with... I, I have not seen it. Don't worry, it's not like a spoiler or anything, okay. but the movie ends with, like, these very powerful images of a, of a cross-burning with the KKK. And the way the camera and the, and the, uh, the lighting frames it is, like, it's almost like something out of a, of a Norman Rockwell painting. Well, though, I don't think he would have... Uh, painted anything like this like it's, it's so it's almost like it's almost like something out of a like yeah yeah that that's the best way to put it very like sort of 
abstract and surreal. And it's kind of the same way as if like it heightens emo- like fire, the burning of fire, the staring into fire brightens, no pun intended, and heightens our emotional response to it. And that's what makes that final scene so unnerving. It's like it's like they're yeah. you know it's like they're looking at the source of their source of happiness is the burning of a cross, the 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 like the symbolism of extreme rape, racism in Amer- in American life, that kind of thing. Oh yeah, and I. I- I think that the sort of the idea of this ecstatic group around a fire very much invokes imagery of like witches covens of like these girls out in the woods, like dancing around a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. Double, and, double, Elsie. What? Double, double, toil and trouble. <laughs> I was thinking more the frightening adventures of Sabrina or the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Um mm. The Frightening yeah. Adventures, that's, that's non-canon. That, that's not really part of the series. No, the Chilling Adventures, not to be confused with the, uh, with, with, with the Terrifying Adventures, which is an entirely other <laughs> thing. Like, we have to be like, careful with our adjectives here, Elsie. Um, but the, you have this coven imagery, and then there's also the fact that like, she looks at this like, very pornographic image, and she's this small child, and her mother's like, stop it, don't look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but she still has the freedom to do that, and it's yeah. this... Like, very free time mm-hmm. that I think is also it's very similar to when she's in college and she's hanging out with her best friend and they're gonna go drinking um I and like you see the 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 knowledge parallel where the people are, are burning books with what I think is it's my favorite line in the the chapters on the floor of the room there were books open face down this way and that extravagantly now I have to wonder, now that we've talked about like the sequential order, do you think this is something like a slippery slope? You start burning the porn and you know what happens next. Forced, uh, um, forced removal of, of childbirth. Um, I, I think that it's sort of the feminism has crashed down, that like mm. you had this, this liberated time and it, it crashes down dramatically with the, the third flashback. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like these those two put together, or, like, put one after the other is maybe not, like, one led to the other, but one yeah. is a symptom of what would eventually become the disease. Yeah. Um, I mean, we also see the fa- the degree to which Offred is not as interested in feminist causes as her mother was, or even as Moira is. Because um, when Moira's like, I just did a paper on date rape, she's like... Date rape, I said. You're so trendy. It sounds like some kind of dessert. Date rape. I... And Moira's like, ha ha, oh, you. Like, yeah, it's like it's, it's this weird like joke very to make. I'll weird be real. casual thing. Um, although, like, it's totally something, like, I would jokingly say with my friends. Because, um, like, if you're in a group where it's acceptable, you're going to make jokes like that. But I, yeah. I, sorry, I, just to go back to the, the line I really like, I just love the yeah. degree to which the way the books are described on the floor feels like someone who's starving is describing food. Like, the, mm-hmm. the, the, they're just sort of strewn all over the place extravagantly. Um, I, and it, it reminds me a lot of all of the different scenes in, in The Hunger Games where Katniss is in the capital and there's food all over the place and she's like, this could feed my entire town. Yeah. Although now it's it's, it, um, it, it, it's porn in this case. <laughs> no, it's just books. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's for, yes. It's it's, it's 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 school books. She she describes how um, she can't remember what paper she had to do the next day. She's like, "What mm-hmm. was it? Psychology, English, economics? We studied things like that then." Then. Um, it's again the way the way Atwood uses like past tense imagery in in that way is just like it's chilling. Uh, it's just yeah. chilling. Um, and it, it sort of goes with the, the ending of the chapter. She's like trying to compile this historical record for whoever comes next, that there was a time where women were studying psychology, English economics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a real Bran Stark, that one. Um, <laughs> thus concludes my topical pop culture reference. Whenever this episode comes out, I might be digging it. <laughs> Like, Bran Stark has been dead for two weeks, Max. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Who are we kidding? Actually... Bran Stark will never die. Um... No, no. He'll just... Kind of, like, he just... For those unfamiliar, this, don't worry, it's not like a huge spoiler. Bran Stark just... He's like the keeper of all the books, but it's all in his head. He just remembers all the things. If you take he away Bran... He sees everything. He's very yeah. weird. Mm-hmm. Everyone yeah, else I... is deeply creeped out by him at this point <laughs> in the show. <Yeah. laughs> Somebody described him on Twitter as... Somebody who's done yoga once and wants to brag about it. <laughs> yeah. See, we're we're topical. We don't just read the hand. We also do other things. Look at how relatable we are. And we've um, yet to talk about Harry Potter this episode, but it's coming. It's coming. We can't it, avoid yeah, it. Yeah, it'll, it'll show up. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is weird how, in the, it, while we're talking about the ending, it's weird how oddly meta Alfred gets near the end. Oh, yeah. I, like this is, this is like the first time in the book that we're like, oh, yes, this is a postmodern novel. Yeah. Um, Postmodern. What a what what a simple thing to describe to people, right? <laughs> <laughs> um Well but the the fact that like she directly calls attention to the fact that it's a story and that um it's a she states that it's a story that she's telling in her head. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. and I just uh I also love the the bit where she says, if it's a story I'm telling, then I have control over the ending. Then there will be an ending to the story, and real life will come after it. I can yeah. pick up where I left off. Um, that the simple act of like telling her story means that like more will come. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Like, it. you know, I'm not in immediate danger, I'll say to you. I'll pretend you can hear me, but it's no good, because I know you can't. Yeah. It's a... Uh, it's that's probably my favorite string of lines because it's like you you know you I'm telling this story but you can't do anything whatever happens yeah. to me from here is something out of your control which is a fascinating way to depict a reader reading a story like it's one thing to say like you are in control of reading it but to say that you are helpless in seeing what happens that's I can't think of the last time another piece of media made that very clear outside of maybe a horror movie but by nature of the genre how it like you know, how it makes you watch the horrible things that's about to happen to the protagonist or the supporting characters. Or the way, in the same way, a video game kind of asks, like a horror video game asks you, hey, you're gonna, you need to walk forward there. You have to press forward to go into that alleyway where you'll know you'll find something you don't want to find. But in this book, it's like, you can't do anything. You're just going to watch as this story unfolds and these horrible things happen. Because yeah. this, is, this is what the relationship is between you and I, reader. Alfred seems to bring her sass to us. Like, fully, which I appreciate. Yeah, especially because, like, I mean, I, I, we, at the risk of, of spoiling things, I think that 
the 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 next part is sort of a slow burn until into the the horror of what her place in the house is. Hmm. Um, Wait, it's not just sex? Oh God. <laughs> I also find it interesting that we end with the handmaids, whom I now know are basically designed to have ch children. She has a child. Yeah. And they're well, like, nope. <laughs> she has to, she's, she's fertile. Um, yeah. And, and the fact that, like, the first thing she says when she comes to is, where is she? What have you done with her? Um, mm -hmm. That she doesn't care about anyone else in her life. It's just her daughter. Yeah. Um, I would. I, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a woman who just gave birth and then is being told that the child that she gave birth to is going to be taken away from her. I, I no, don't know if there are a few. There are a few horrors just, in the world that are worse than that. It's not that she just gave birth, though, because she mm. describes the fact that um, they show her a picture of her child. So they, they show me a picture of her standing outside on a lawn, her face a, cl a closed oval. Her light hair was pulled back tight behind her head. Holding her hand was a woman I didn't know. She was only as tall as the woman's elbow. Like, we're talking about, like, a six or seven-year-old. Oh, I was, I was, I thought, I guess I missed that line because I, um, I read, I would come up through a roaring and confusion as if she, like, just came out of something. As well, in, like, she, she came describes up from... that she's like, I know I lost time. Yeah, exactly. Like, pins, need, like, like she had just been, like, sedated or something. That, that's yeah. what I mean. But I, I, yeah, I guess I totally. Sorry, readers. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily I, uh, mean she just gave birth, but they've, yeah, they've sedated true. her for some reason, um, mm -hmm. and she came to and is like, "Where's my daughter?" And they're like, "She's in better hands." You've killed her, I said. She looked like an angel, solemn, compact, made of air. Yeah. Oh, it's so good, so good. That's just that's just a powerful way to describe. That's like the worst insult you could give somebody. She's just, he's just like this, this idiot. He's just like totally a drone. He's just made of air. Like, that's just like, that's just, that's a Yeah, bit. and the fact that she's saying it about her daughter, that she's like, yeah. she doesn't exist anymore because she's been captured by Gilead. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, boy. And I'm assuming that her memories of being indoctrinated and controlled into Gilead are only going to get more vague from here because I get the sense that the way America, the world fell, the, the way that the United States of America fell is, seems to be pretty vaguely stated, like, intentionally. So, I would Somewhat. say that We're Alfred gonna... becoming part of that system is also pretty vague. Yeah, I and mean, she flat out says that she knows she lost time, that there there's a period of time she can't account for. God, it's so weird. Like, like, she was sedated for how long, I wonder? Like, was she just put under for, like, years while... She the doesn't know, like, and she's also, like, later on she'll talk about how people in the Red Center thought the food was drugged. Hmm. Um, oh, God. she doesn't know. Huh. She was like, yeah, we were tired all the time, but I don't know if it was just because, like, what they were doing was tiring or the fact that they were drugging us. <sighs> it's a trustworthy place, right? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's like, it, it's all, like... Again, it's just the subtle ways that, that, like, this story just kind of, like, get, like, just kind of seeps down your shoulders and shows you these, this horror of, like, just, it's, it, it, it's not, it's not blatant. It's not, like, shooting people in the streets. It's just very quiet. It's very, it's, uh, it's controlled. As if you have no control over it, just as we, the readers, have no control over it. It's in better world. hands. She's with people who are fit now. 
Like, yes. you, you don't you don't need to have scenes of uh, women losing their eyes and getting beaten in the street when you have a scene like that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I, I, you know, it was the empathy pulled in. I was, like, I, I heard, like, she's in a better place now. I would be, like, I would be ready to punch somebody. Somebody says she's a she's in a better place. Like, that's just, like, really, like... I mean, I mean, it's There's condescending a reason that she's, she's heavily drugged. Yeah. Um. I want to see Offred... By the end of the book, I expect to see Offred punch a dude in the face. <laughs> Expectation. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that just that's the climax. Pre she prepare? punches the command. I mean, listen, commanders are known to be murdered by their wives. What, what about murdered by a handmaid? <laughs> or maybe it'll happen in the sequel. Who knows? Well, sequel... Um, may or may not be about her oh because there's three protagonists in the sequel interesting yeah i'm excited um yeah also um another one of my favorite lines but as we're just kind of like drifting around yeah. the end of the chapter is i would like to believe this is a story i'm telling because that is cold like yeah, that is like, like, I, 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 I don't know if anyone is going to hear this story but i'd like to believe that you exist yeah i I, I empathize with that a lot. Dear you, because... I'll say. Just you, without a name. Mm-hmm. I've heard recently that, maybe it's not, I think I heard in like a documentary or something, that after food, water, and shelter, humans desire recognition. And I think in the same way, we desire history and to be remembered. And hoping, praying that somebody hears this story is like Alfred's like humanistic need. You know? Oh yeah, no, it, it it definitely is, and I think Atwood, um, Margaret Atwood, brings up this idea of the literature of the witness in her New York Times article, um, Margaret Atwood on what *Handmaid's Tale* means in the age of Trump. Um, I that like um, it that the story is this act of hope. Every recorded story implies a future reader. Robin Crusoe, Robinson Crusoe keeps a journal. So did Samuel Pe Pepe's? Pe I don't know how to pronounce the guy's last name. In which he chronicles the Great Fire of London. So did many people who lived during the Black Death, although their accounts often stopped abruptly. So did Romeo Dallier when he chronicled both the Rwandan genocide and the world's indifference to it. So did Anne Frank hidden in her secret annex. Hmm. Fascinating. That it's this this need to chronicle the the horror of what's happening, the, to be a witness, um, mm -hmm. is what Alfred is doing in her her the a a story is like a letter, dear you. I say just you without a name, which is a fascinating way to put it, like to to yeah. recontextualize it and as the, and the fact that she says that attaching a name attaches you to the world of fact which is riskier more hazardous who knows what chances are you out there of survival yours i guess what it means is i guess what offer's really saying is witness me please <laughs> well but and she's like i she she sort of implicitly says that she hopes that thousands will read this mhm mm um, but is she like i'd like to reference something uh a pop culture reference but something that, uh, of a book i read when i was in middle school called the last book in the universe mm -hmm. anybody out there has ever heard of it you get extra brownie points for I, me. I, I have not heard of it yeah no it's it's not it's not exactly a famous book but i just found it in a pile of like middle school reader but the idea is that this kid uh like it, it takes place in a dystopian world um 
And he's just kind of like recording this message. And the entire thing is about like how there are no books left and this is the last one and he might be the last one alive and he's not sure. Yeah. Like, and the way he's like talking about it, it's like he's think, trying to record the last of it. I think it's a common trope in dystopian literature because you see it in 1984 as well that like Winston has his diary that's highly illegal. Yeah. Um, and what I have to wonder is we know that in, in that book we know he's he's writing it. He's like talking into like a voice thing, like basically Siri. But Alfred's not writing this, is she? Like, in the canon or in, like, in this scenario, she's not writing these stories, correct? She's yeah, just kind it's, of telling it's sort of a- ambiguous. Like, she says, I, I would like to believe that this is a story I'm telling. I need to believe it. I must believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, which implies that it may or may not actually be a story she's telling. It could be just a story that she's thinking. Hmm. Oh, boy. Like, all this could be just false. It yeah, could all just be it's her, like... very postmodern. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. Offred, come on. I, I understand the unreliable narrator, but this is ridiculous. Well, she's as unreliable as anyone else. She's not um, purposefully being unreliable. In, this, in that same vein of the unreliable narrator, I was recently playing through the very old game Final Fantasy VII, which is one of the first video games to ever include a protagonist who is unreliable. Mm-hmm. Who has memories that he tells that we play through that he then be, that then is revealed to be fake spoilers by the way that are, then, that are then revealed to be untrue that he actually inherited the memories from somebody else it's a long very weird game but the way they frame it is in such a way that it is never entirely clear where he is until the very last moment until like and like the way they like this is like a PlayStation One game so the storytelling is kind of primitive. Yeah. But it was also revolutionary at its time. And the way that it introduces that unreliable narrator is fascinating. And it changes, like, how we perceive the character and perceive the world that he lives in. And I think it's interesting um, because it's all, like, because the time that he is telling stories is when he's his most unreliable. We even have a sequence where you have to go back into a manifestation of his memories and, like, relive it as it was actually instead of the memory that he keeps telling everybody. So it's kind of the same idea. I'm, you know, in that game, he's just Ooh. telling the stories, and we're seeing them play out. But then you explore them in a contextual environment. In the same way that, like, Offer is just saying, "I'm hoping this is a story that people are hearing." It's the same kind of thing in that game. Yeah, and other than the inconsistencies um, in the second chapter, the third chapter, I can't remember, um, of uh, Serena Joy being like, "I read your file." And uh, the description of uh, Offred's room where she's like, I wonder if all the rooms are like this, but she's had two other rooms. There aren't really, like, conflicting accounts in here. There's – because, well, A, because there's no one else to give an account. Um, Yeah. And, like – I, she's doing the best she can, Max. Mm-hmm. Stop calling I guess that's her the unreliable. Big yeah, I, I guess that's the big difference here is that there's actually a character in – uh, Final Fantasy VII that is lying and that actually yeah. exposes what really happened. Yeah, so, no, so we like, don't have that luxury in this case. Yeah. Um, and I, I, again, she's not an unreliable narrator in the sense that, like, she's a bad person and she's trying to mislead the audience. She's an unreliable narrator in that if I ask you to tell me about your life, you're going to get some things wrong because memory sucks. Yeah. She's, le- um, I'm trying to think of somebody who's, like, a better example, but, like, She's the opposite of, like, Cusco. Yes. <laughs> he's unreliable in the sense that he will reframe the narrative as his own for, like, just because of he's so conceited at the beginning yeah. of the new groove. But in this case, it's just like, yeah, things are just really foggy because we were in a dystopia and, no, and like, nothing is clear. I was drugged. I lost a bunch of time. 
Yeah, huh. I really like stories with unreliable narrators. I'm just realizing that now. Wow, that's... Huh. Yeah, I went through a phase in high school where I really liked books that were letters to another character. So I really Ooh. liked The Handmaid's Tale, and I really liked The Argonauts and um, Between the World and Me, mm -hmm. uh, where The Argonauts is a woman writing to her genderqueer partner. Interesting. And Between the World and Me is a father writing to his son. Yeah, it's sort of it's it's phrased that there's a you that he's talking to, yeah, or that she's talking to, in both. Um. <laughs> and on that same note, the entirety of the Bioshock video game franchise is entirely unreliable narrator. The video game, honestly, <laughs> like basically, like if you've played those games, you know that's like the that's the basis of the twist in all three games. <laughs> is that oh look, the character you've been playing is not the character you thought he they, you thought he was. Yeah, and it's also the um, twist in uh, We Happy Few. Oh, is that... I had a feeling it would be like that, because that game looks very inspired by Bioshock. And that, and the Bioshock games, for the record, that is a better example of what Offred's going through, in that those characters are manipulated, and f and their memory is foggy until yeah. they discover the truth. No spoilers, but they just discover their truths yeah, as we discover I mean, them. So yeah. that's a better example than the other one I gave earlier. Yeah, with We Happy Few, it's that, like, everyone is on this drug joy um, mm -hmm. that is, like, explicitly messing with people's memories. But, like, I don't think that, like, I don't think that her memory is inaccurate. I think it's it's just as inaccurate as anyone else's memory, where she's like, yeah, I know that I was writing a paper that was due soon, but I can't remember what course it was for, because, I mean, this must be, like, ten years ago at this point in the story. I ha Like, I have to wonder, what is, in The Handmaid's Tale, the most detailed, accurate account of what's happening? I wonder if we've... No, I'm not asking, like, there's, it's a rhetorical question. There's no question, way to like, tell. Hmm. This, yeah, I have a feeling this is going to become a recurring thing. Th like, this is, what this does is, she actually mean? This is a mean? story that she's telling. All of it is a story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's, like, that's that's that that speaks volumes about how the book is written so well in that, like... Yeah. It is so layered in that we can tell that it's, it's like foggy. Shrek. Yeah. Like, I'm always told in storytelling... Shrek. Wow, I was just like, it took a second to like, like, ding, ding, yeah. ding. <laughs> just kept moving. I just meant the yeah, fact no, that was... ogres have layers. It's <laughs> uh, like onions. Um, Sorry so, to uh, just I... like throw you off no, the rails no, that's... there. But that's Shrek. That's just what he does. He throws everything off the rails all the time. That's why he's such a popular internet figure. Um, so we were always taught in like, film school and stuff. I have a background in filmmaking and screenwriting stuff. And we're always told to have your world organized and laid out before you start the story. And in this case, the story is like, the world is so laid out that we can have our main character have foggy memories of it. And like, it's still pretty clear that it's like an established world. Like that's like, yeah. that is like layers upon layers of like world building and stuff, which is very impressive. I can't think of another work that does that. Yeah, no, I think Atwood is sort of the queen of giving you no exposition and just sort of throwing water on your face and being like, okay, have fun navigating that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where, like, yeah, it doesn't say that it's her daughter, but, like, it's like, you can kind of pick up based on a bunch of different context clues that it's her daughter and that her daughter's a yeah. child at the time. But it's not mm -hmm. obvious. Running, it's like a college paper, like, or like a high school essay question. Rick, uh, what do you think Offred was referring to in the third memory in chapter seven? Yeah. Like, she was obviously talking about her dog. 
Like, she had a dog <laughs> once, and they took her away. That's obviously, like, how could you not, right? <laughs> um, I, yeah, well, it's one of the, yeah. Why do you think um, Offred's mother treats her this way? Like, treats her so, with such absence? <sighs> I mean, it's sort of hard to tell with what we have so far. Um, I mean, they just sort of have this kind of strained relationship. She states that her mother often talks about her like she isn't there. Um, and I mean, the, the introduction we have to her mother um, earlier on is that, like, her mother would be asleep and she'd go and watch the um, the Growing Souls Gospel Hour because um, mm-hmm. it's what was on Sunday morning. Um, the old serenity. Serene. Wait. <laughs> Try to remember the name because I'm bad with names. Yes, that right? Serenity Joyous. That's the character. Serenity Joyous. <laughs> Not from the Hunger Games, from this book. It's a joke because her name's Serena Joy. Get it? Oh. Mm. I totally <laughs> forgot. I, I thought you were being serious because I knew it sounded like that. By the way, folks, I'm just terrible with names. I've not, like, forgotten everything that's happened before. I just, I'm really bad with names. Um, yeah, also, like... I, I think she just sort of has a strained relationship with her, her mother, and her mother has this cause that she's really into that Offred is clearly not that excited about. Like, she's just sort of there. Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, the fact that her mother lies to her and is like, hey, we're going to go feed ducks in the park, and then they get to the park, and it's a porn burning. Been there. Am I right, folks? Every We've all been there where our parents are like, we're going to go for a duck feeding and it's actually just a porn burning. I mean, it's just a, a classic childhood experience. memory. Yes. Um, and like she describes her mother's face as usually pale and thinnish. And she's saying that like it's surprising that her, her mother's face looked cheerful. Ruddy. Um, <laughs> what, a, what a word, right? Ruddy. Yeah. It, it, it sort of makes her mother appear quite dour. And, like, physically cold. Because, I mean, the, the fact that the opposite of what she usually looks like is, is ruddy. And so, therefore, like, red and cheerful. Um, you know, if I may use context clues real quick. Mm-hmm. Do you think Alfred was kind of, like, is so attached to Aunt Lydia, like, her words and stuff, because she had such a weird, distant relationship with her mom? Like... I don't... <sighs> Well, but she clearly doesn't like Aunt Lydia. Like she's yeah, very no, but she just like remembers all the stuff of, of, of Janine for having gotten along with Aunt Lydia. Hmm, that's true. Yeah, but I definitely think that Aunt Lydia is sort of a foil to her mother. Yeah, I, that that can make sense too. Yeah, and like, I, I also of... feel like we don't we don't get any axioms from her mother. Hmm. Like yeah. we've no, yet I mean, to not see... in this chapter or. In, in the chapters we've read so far, like we've, we've yet yeah. to, to see her mother say anything to her that she's like, ah, oh, yes, it's as mother said, X. Um, it's just that her mother is just kind of there. Yeah, you brought up this up earlier. She had a way of talking about me to others as if, as if I couldn't hear. Yeah. And I have to wonder how this is going... character, because she talks about the porn burning as good, good riddance to bad rubbish, she said, chuckling. Rubbish? Is she British? She's just old. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably it, yeah. She's just old. Like Tarzan from a vine on the TV. Yeah, I love this. We, we had a, she, she looks at this 
woman who's in chains and naked um, and can't process the image because she's a child and is like, huh, cool. Mm -hmm. And I I enjoy it. (laughs) I feel like I've, I've, I, okay, truly, I have been there. Like, I have, like, looked at something very sexual and be like, this looks kind of cool. Like, you know, like, like, like a 13-year-old or something. So I've been there. I, I get it. Like, yeah, no. I wonder if part of this, this, like, reflecting on this memory where she couldn't understand the image and it didn't frighten her, um, mm-hmm. is, like, this longing for the innocence of childhood, of not understanding what it is. Yeah. In reading, like, I was especially curious to know how she would how she reacts and how she describes throwing that magazine to the fire because it's clearly a way we can describe like, you know, I threw the magazine into the flames. It riffled open in the wind of its burning. Big flakes of paper came loose, sailed into the air, still on fire, parts of women's bodies turning to black ash in the air before my eyes. I paused there because the the, the phrasing was a bit... Yeah, uh, no, it's like very explicitly being like anti-pornography feminism is anti-woman. Um, yeah, okay, yes. Because it's like describing the parts of women's bodies burning up in this book burning. Yeah. Uh, and again, the way it goes from here's this relationship between mother and daughter that is like distant, but also they're close together, to here's a relationship with a woman with her daughter that she doesn't get to see anymore and who's like physically distant. Although yeah. it's the dark, oh, it's dark irony. Good one, Atwood. I see ya. I see you there. The memories are thematically related, Max. They jump from one to the next. Yeah. Still, still figuring out the whole uh, date rape one. Uh, I don't. Well, because it's um, like she's thinking of the good times back when she was in college, and like there were so many books that they were they were wanton about them. They were just strewn mm-hmm. about. Who cares? And like her her best friend was like hanging out in her room with her and talking to her, and she get got to study these interesting things. And it's 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 very much the good times before the fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Okay, yeah, this is actually making more sense. Um, now, okay, I, I I knew there was a connection between all three. I was just not sure what it was, and I was hoping that this episode could help me enli- could help enlighten that for me. And I, it most certainly has. <laughs> Thank you for like bringing up that we should look for the connection. I've never thought of 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 trying to connect the memories because I'm like they just sort of feel like they flow from one to the other. I like yeah. it. Mm-hmm. But Feels we have to we have right. to explain everything, Elsie. Don't you know how the yes, internet works? Can explain works. the lore behind the Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> oh God, help me! Um, Hello and welcome to see. the Handmaid's Tale Easter egg uh, oh, video. God. Top ten Handmaid's Tale Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. Very uh, surprised. What's up, right now, gamers? Offered. It's me, your girl Sappho, <laughs> back at it again with a Handmaid's Tale <laughs> speed run. Oh, <laughs> this is um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> any percent. Uh, any that percent. means just reading through the... Yeah, you... Any percent means you skim the book. Yes. No, I was about to say, like, it's really interesting when Offred uh, acquires the Time Stone. That was... I was not expecting <laughs> that to be referenced. <laughs> well, I mean, All right. Like, I think what, we've... Ex- what time do I go to? So she definitely has the Time Stone, like... Oh, yeah, that's the only way she can remember these times. She yeah. just has to figure out how to harness it like Doctor Strange does. Oh, God, what has pop culture done to me? Um, uh, apologies out to any English uh, teachers reading it. By the way, Elsie, I should maybe make this clear. The reason I keep like bringing up pop culture references, this is something I did when I was in high school, too. It's just, um, I think my teachers always saw it as, oh, he just doesn't like the book and he wants to talk about something else. 
but it really is just like a way for me to recon like to use stuff of me that I'm very used to to recontextualize stuff that I'm just being becoming used to. Like it's yeah, it makes kind sense. of yeah, I am truly the family guy of readers. <laughs> hey, this is like that one time. Yeah, and that's, well, I mean, so this is not in malice. I, I'm enjoying this book. I am truly. Yeah, no, and I I I similarly relate to 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 texts that way. Um, I recall once in high school, a teacher asked um, if you would want St. Ambrose as your neighbor. No, not St. Ambrose, St. Monica as your neighbor. And I was like, I mean, it feels kind of similar to whether or not you want Ned Flanders as your neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed this chapter. I did. I liked, it was different. And yeah. even though it's a pro- I do like how it's sort of isolated, as we talked about at the very beginning of this episode. That's a bookend, <laughs> uh, folks. Um, I do like how it's just kind of its own isolated thing because it is structurally different from anything we've seen so far to an extent. Yeah, where it gives us different no points of time. New location described. This yeah. is the first chapter <laughs> where that's the case. There's no new location described. It's entirely flashbacks. There's mm-hmm. no actions that occur. Flashbacks, non-chronologically jumping back and forth. Who wrote this chapter? Kurt Vonnegut? Am I right, people? Atwood is better than Kurt Vonnegut. You can fight me. Big Mother Night fan. I think it's mm. similarly structured, but I digress. I, I, I like Slaughterhouse Five. That's that, that, that was the that was the joke I was cutting. <laughs> yeah. You got any closing thoughts? Because I'm good. Oh, uh, uh, um, yeah. I just think it's. The narrative of the witness is beautiful, and I, I think that, you know, it's... It's important, too. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to act like I think Offred's a real person, because obviously this is a work of fiction. She's not a real person. But, like, I like the fact that she is sharing this with us in this particular mm-hmm. way, that it feels like she's a character who is talking to us, and we're sort of hanging out in her brain with her, where she says... I th- I like to believe that this is a story I'm telling. Mm-hmm. I think that's, if I may make a jump, I think that's why people like meta characters like, for example, Deadpool so much. Because they allow us to be, to feel like we're not kind of like, we're not like uh, strapped to this narrative and to this world. We feel more eased into it. Like, oh, yeah. he's in on the joke just as we are. It's like, she's in on the story just as we are. And it's like, I guess it's not the exact same thing, but I think it's the same reason why we feel both compelled to offer it. It's like, as soon as she allows us to, like, she's, she as a character in this chapter is, like, vulnerable. She's like, I wish this was a story I was just telling. Yeah. But in my world, this is what's happening. Like. Yeah, no, and I, I, you know, as much as we talk about her as an unreliable narrator, I think that she's very honest. And she is really mm-hmm. telling the world as she sees it. Um, yeah. Warts and all. And. Yeah. In in a way that, like, might not necessarily make her seem like a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, if, uh, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I feel like there's a connotation surrounding unreliable narrators as being, like, intentional. Yeah. Where in this, it's just, she is honestly unreliable. As in, she is as, un- she is as, as reliable as she can humanly be. Yeah, she's not an, an omniscient narrator. Yeah. Which is... Nice for a change. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. Wait, wait, um, Max. I think we just went an entire episode without making a Harry Potter reference. We got him, boys. <laughs> we got him. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. I really did just slam my desk there in celebration. Uh, it's only because it's... Okay, listen. I don't think we have any angry fan mail yet, but uh, in case you were getting sick of it, just know that the only reason that we bring it up so often is that because it's a very... It's a very easy way to communicate certain ideas yeah because we all because anybody who's listening to this 
has very likely read or been exposed to Harry Potter. And that's the reason why we bring it up, because it's an easy... It's I think we talked about this in a previous episode. It's the same reason why we see Hercules praying in the Disney movie Hercules. He's not a, like that's not actually a thing it's he ever everyone's did. Everyone's read Harry Potter. It's like the, it's short. It, it's it's like the Bible for our generation, but without the religious connotation. It's just the the text that we all know. Mm-hmm. And lo, Hagrid bought the dead Harry body down from the Forbidden Forest. Yeah, and laid I don't him upon like the, the Christ symbolism in Book Seven. It's not great. Anyways, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's weird. Joan, what's, what's going on? They're, Please, they're, can we... They're going to kick me this? out of the, the, the recording lab. We need to... Oh, God. All right. Um, well, thank you for listening. Uh, if you're looking to find us on social media, you can find us at The Ofcast on Twitter. You can also find me on uh, YouTube at uh, Max Mariner or on Twitter as Mr. Max Mariner. That's just M-R Max Mariner. Uh, you can find me on YouTube as Sappho Lesbos. That's Sappho spelled S-A-P-P-H-O. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Muse Sappho. Um, our intro music is done by the lovely Daniel Shariat. And our graphic design and branding is done by the wonderful Sydney Elliott. All right. Praise be. Praise be. Thanks for watching. If you excuse me, I'm going to go feed some ducks. <laughs>